Welcome back, dear friends and policy lovers, to another episode of the Oxford Policy Podcast. The first of 2024, and I hope all of your New Year's have started wonderfully. My name is Nick Fabry, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Grace Fox, who is a current Master of Public Policy student here at the Blavatnik School of Government within the University of Oxford. Grace is from Oklahoma in the United States and is a member of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma, a Native American tribe. Grace has a background in psychology and Indigenous studies and a diverse and impressive set of experiences across non-profit management, policy creation and community-centred organising. In today's conversation, we're hoping to learn more about Grace as a person, to understand her unique story and background and the drivers that inform her work in Native American policy, education, equity and social justice. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Grace. Thank you so much, Nick, for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here, truly. Wonderful. And before we dive into the interview, um, how was your winter vacation? Did you get back to the States to see your fam? I did. I did. And it was it was fantastic. I truly needed the time and rest and relaxation with my family. And I did get to do a little bit of traveling before, beforehand, though. I, I did some a Birmingham moment. I did a Glasgow and Edinburgh and London moment, which was which was pretty cool for That's me. Stunning. Now back to wonderful... Grey and gloomy England. Grey and gloomy Oxford, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so for our listeners who aren't as familiar with your background, um, could you tell us a bit about your story, um, how you came here to be here today, sitting in a podcast studio in Oxford talking to an Australian? Right. Well, hello, everybody. It's nice to nice to be here with you guys. Um, I'm Grace Fox, as, as Nick introduced me already, but I am from Edmond, Oklahoma, and I'm a member of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma, which is, as he said, an indigenous nation there. I was born and raised in Oklahoma, lived my whole life there with my family, and my mom, dad, brother, and I've had a couple dogs throughout my lifetime. Currently, they are Hotch and Watson, which are the, the joys of my life. Um, I, you know, grew up a relatively normal upbringing, you know, suburban, um, and just pretty much living my life as a normal kid. My parents did so much and gave me and my brother the absolute best life they could ever give us. And I will forever be thankful for them. And and they'll come up a few times in my story of just them being the foundations of why I'm able to be here and be at Oxford and be, have the education that I do today. And I went to, you know, high school in Oklahoma, graduated, um, and I really wanted to go into college studying uh, psychology and viola performance. I am an avid musician. I've, wow. I've loved orchestral um, performance for many, many years of my life. But I, you know, I didn't really know what exactly I wanted to do. I've always been fascinated and delighted by social justice and activism. I found kind of, you know, my roots in that during a movement for education and for funding for public education in Oklahoma during 2017, 2018, which was a, which was a big problem and continues to be a big problem in the States. Um, as some of the other people who have been on this podcast have probably said, I, uh, you know, graduated and I was lucky enough to receive valedictorianship, which was fantastic, but I also had worked my whole life. I, I never knew if I was going to make it out of Oklahoma, but that was my, that was my dream. It really was. And my parents and my brother and my family at large always encouraged me to go bigger and, and strive for my dreams. And so I did, and I knew I couldn't afford it. I come from not the most wealthy family. And I was lucky enough to apply for and work really hard and receive ultimately the Bill and Melinda Gates scholarship. So it is because of that program that I was able to go to Columbia University after receiving a likely letter and my admittance and ultimately attend uh, majoring in psychology and ethnicity and race studies for Native American and Indigenous studies. I completed my, my tenure at Columbia with a, with cum laude, and I, you know, finished up with departmental honors in both both majors, which I'm very very proud of. And there, I was able to make a community and a friendship, and a cohort of people that I will always always treasure near and dear to my heart. And it's some of them as well who pushed me to apply to Oxford and pushed me to go to the Blavatnik School of Government and really encouraged me to follow my dreams. Even though for me at the time, I didn't believe they were possible, but. Mm-hmm. They never stopped believing in me. They believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. And ultimately, it is the love and the care and the push of my family and friends and community that has allowed me to be here and create a new community with all of you guys here at Oxford. And it is something that I treasure greatly. I have, you know, 
as we'll talk about later on, I've worked in Native American policy and education policy primarily, but I, I've done other work in technology and in health fields as well. And so I'm, I've been so honored at Oxford to meet everybody and continue on with my journey here. So thank you for having me. And I'm, I'm so excited to talk about my journey. Wonderful. It's obviously a very um, American thing, I think, for people at the end of high school to move into state. Um, it's very, very different in Australia. We tend to sort of go to universities in our home cities. But I can imagine going from Oklahoma in the south, sort of just north or east of Texas maybe. Right. Just north, right. Um, hence the accent, the southern. <laughs> there you go. Yes, of course, the accent. <laughs> yeah, which is, uh, yeah, we love. Um, and so what are some of the happiest memories from Columbia University in living in New York City? You were involved in a, a wide range of extracurricular activities there. And obviously, I imagine it's sort of like almost stepping through the door into Narnia, right? Into New York or a exactly. completely different world. So, so different. Mm. Yeah, no. So I'm actually the first person in my family to leave the state for school. In Oklahoma, just like Australia probably, it's not common for people to leave really the community, leave, you know, Oklahoma. The two most popular schools are Oklahoma State University and Oklahoma University of Oklahoma, right? And pretty much it's a pipeline, like, as a child, you have this funnel that just pushes you from elementary, middle, high school, and then you're off to one of those two or, you know, one of the smaller schools in Oklahoma. But it is really rare to have people leave the state. And so for me to tell my parents as a freshman in high school and tell them, I fell in love with New York. That is my dream. Mm. I want to go. And having them support me and tell me, yeah, I can do it. And if I can find a way to pay for it and I can find a way to get in, then the world is my oyster and, and my dreams are endless. And so I was I was fortunate enough to have that upbringing. And ultimately that led me to going to Columbia. But of course, coming from a background that, you know, I did not meet a lot of people at Columbia from with, with a similar background from me. You had people from the American South, yes, but I was one of maybe two or three people from Oklahoma. Um, and then I was one of two Native American people um, mm -hmm. from Oklahoma. And so getting to experience you know, a whole different life force, right? I come from rural. I come from a very red state. I come from, you know, a place where in high school, I would always say I'm bored. I want more with my life. And going to Columbia felt like a a new magical world opened up, right? Mm -hmm. Like I got to experience people I had never seen and, and cultures and languages and you know, foods and things as simple as slang just really changed my outlook on life. And my some of my happiest moments are from Columbia and from New York City. I think that the reason I, I ultimately went up with Columbia was because my dream was New York and I wanted to live that big city life for a little bit in my life and I didn't know when else I would have the chance to do it. And so I would say some of my favorite memories from Columbia are the friends that I made. I went through a really really rough last couple of years of high school, um, including, you know, my parents getting divorced and me being intensely, intensely bullied and men having mental I'm health sorry. crises and them really exacerbating my a self-image for myself that I was not proud of and a life that I was sad to live in. And so getting to go to Columbia and make a whole new group of friends who loved me and wanted me and cared for me deeply and made me feel included and needed and valued above everything else was something that is truly foundational to my memories, my memory building at Columbia. Mm -hmm. I couldn't have done it without them. I wouldn't have done it without them. And surviving a pandemic, right? Um, oh, I, wow. you know, my freshman year of, of college was in 2019. And right, so six months later throughout my freshman year, we get hit with a pandemic. And that's definitely not the college experience I had dreamed of, right? I finally made it out of Oklahoma um, or how I felt at the time just to make it to my dream, have only to have it ripped away. And I think there comes a lot of trauma with that. Were but you locked down in New York or did you have to go back home to... No, so <laughs> funny story, but one of the best memories that I, I guess I'll touch on real quick that involves that is the first week of the pandemic, right? It's the first week of March and we had our first case in New York. And at that point, we didn't really know what was going on. We had seen stuff going down in Europe, but we didn't know how bad is this going to be? Is this going to be, you know, what everybody said two weeks and then we'll be back 
you know, back in school, back in the classroom, or could this be something worse? And one of my dear friends, Devin, um, he's now a paralegal in, in Paris and one of my closest and dearest friends who has continued throughout the years. He was the first person I actually met at Columbia. Hmm. Um, he got a whole bunch, our whole friend group who were all scared and many of us not from New York. He put us in a car and he took us and most generously offered a week at his house in, in the Hamptons to right. spend with him and stay with him in a safe area where we felt if they locked down the city, we will be at least out of the major city and be able to most likely find a way out as opposed to being locked down in Manhattan, right? And Which was so like ground zero. Wasn't ground it? zero, I mean, right. Yeah. We had no idea what was going on. And so some of my best memories are actually spent in the Hamptons with just a group of, you know, 10 people living in a house, <laughs> you know, watching the world end, but yeah. we had each other. And Amazing. we got to experience, you know, the beginning of the pandemic together, which we didn't know at the time was kind of a, you know, a goodbye for a while um, because that was the last real substantial time we had left. And uh, so right after that, you know, I went back to the city and they told us that we could, you know, go to spring break as usual. 24 hours after I had landed on a spring break trip after they had reassured us, Columbia had reassured us that this was fine. It's going to be solved in two weeks. Just take an extra long spring break. Yeah. The moment I arrive in Colorado, which I had previously lived in with my family, 24 hours later, we get an email from the president of Columbia saying, you have 24 hours to get your stuff out of your dorm. Like we are shutting down the university. You need to come get your stuff and leave. So in, you know, less than a week, I, my, my mom had been in five States. Um, I had been in, you know, coast to coast crazy situation. Right. But not conducive to studying, I imagine. Can, right. Well, not conducive to studying. And so ultimately we all moved back into my house at the time back in Oklahoma. And that is where I spent the majority of the pandemic. I got to spend some time, you know, with some friends back home and really just kind of develop my college life in Oklahoma in an office or in my bedroom, which was not what I had expected, but something that has taught me resilience. And, yeah. you know, although it was a really traumatizing time and I still look back with a lot of sadness and, you know, a feeling of being missing out, there was a lot of good, happy moments of testing friendship and seeing how having movie nights and and, mm. and game nights and really being involved with each other, which showed the strength of friendship that I, I made at Columbia. And that's one of my favorite memories for mm. sure. It's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, it's always amazing to me because I'm a bit older than you. I'm probably like, oh, I'm 31. Oh, just a little bit. <laughs> a little bit but like <laughs> I'm always, um, when I meet, I don't know, you call them probably like pandemic undergrads or something. There's not right. like an official term for them, but people who didn't really get to experience, at least for the full four years of their undergrad, no. all like the joys of of like university life. And I think Joe Wolf, who's a, a professor of uh, political philosophy here at the Blavatnik School of Government, wrote an article about this in the in the Guardian about how much like life and, and I don't know, affirmative experiences people missed out on, like going down to see live music, going with your mates at the pub, going to the sport, just like hanging out around the university. And yeah, there was, a, I do have a number of other friends as well that I know who, and a couple of people at our MPP cohort right. too, who just simply didn't get that. But um, yeah, it's quite extraordinary. But It just did, it did not exist. And so, you know, I think we became more resilient because mm. of it, but there are just so many minute moments, right, where I, I entered my junior year feeling like a lost freshman sometimes, <laughs> you know? I was like, what am I doing here? Yeah. I, I don't know because I never had had to learn that yeah. way. And, and you're making up for lost time now by getting the most out of Oxford, which is good. Oh, of course. I never got to study abroad, but this is the, this. I would say this is way better, getting to live here for real and, yeah, exactly. and do a program that I love. I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about the history of the Seminole Nation and your people, situated alongside the broad history of the Americas um, since European colonization after 1492, which is quite a schismatic or, um, you know, um, fundamental year, I suppose, in, in the history of the 60 million American mm -hmm. or Native Americans um, that were living across the Americas in North and South continent. Um, that time with I think Columbus actually discovering, as they, as they termed it from a European perspective, the new world. So, Right. Well, I feel like a lot of my life, I mean, has been contextualized through this lens of colonialism and being Indigenous and really seeing this, you know, life that I live in from many different perspectives, right? I am privileged to have grown up in a family that has always loved me and always cared for me and always made me feel like I belong and make me proud of my culture and my heritage. But that is not a lot of what I experienced outside my family. Um, I 
you know, growing up in Oklahoma, like I said, which is a predominantly red state, despite it being home to some of the most dense Native American populations um, after forced relocation, there is still a very stereotyped and uh, oftentimes incorrect narrative that surrounds indigenous peoples and our life for our life ways and our culture and our history. And that was something that I had experienced, you know, as early on as, you know, as you were saying, with Columbus Day and Christopher Columbus discovering the quote unquote new world in 1492 was in my elementary school. And one of the most distinct things I remembered now looking back upon, I, I'm horrified that, mm. you know, m me and my brother and other indigenous kids experienced this was the celebration of Columbus Day. And they had us spend an entire week working on glorifying these conquistadors and building little boats made out of, you know, juice boxes and paper and cardboard and plastic. And on Columbus Day, which is supposed to be this, you know, glorifying day of celebrating a, what a lot of people still believe to be a hero, you know, we'd race our little boats in a kiddie pool outside and celebrate um, being pilgrims. And I remember feeling so icky about that as a child. And I could never really put on my finger why that was so icky, because at this time I hadn't delved into, you know, the history, which I'll, I'll touch briefly on, but of settler colonialism, of <laughs> genocide, of continual racism, of erasure, of misrepresentation, of stigmatization. And but even as a child, you had a workable understanding of, of you being Native American and of the Seminole Nation such that you felt that celebrating 1492 and it, Columbus Day didn't feel right. It always felt odd and it mm. always felt harmful and hurtful. And But I couldn't express that to my peers. They yeah. wouldn't understand. I'm pretty sure I was the only Native kid in my class um, in you know, the cohort throughout my, my younger years and always feeling icky, not knowing why and being told a history that was not real, knowing now, um, older and wiser, that what they were telling us was 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 false. They they so so generously glided over the genocide of of my people, of all indigenous people, of you know settler colonialism, not only in the United States but in in South America and Australia, in yeah. you know even in the UK. If we're looking at Ireland, Wales, and Scotland, um, looking at this history, it was particularly profound. I'm sorry to jump yeah, in. Yeah, no, but of course. It was. I mean, I've done another interview with um, an historian friend who talked about there being 60 million, I think, through right. some archaeological um, and research in the 70s and 80s, mm -hmm. which dr dramatically revised upwards our understanding of how many Native Americans there were across right. both continents. They say 60 million in 1492, and mm -hmm. they say up to about 90% of yes. those were, were, were died out, I mean, I suppose, in the right. decades after. So. Right, and I, I think a lot of that narrative still continues of you know, you said wiped out, right? And a, a giant movement within indigenous peoples and natives is that we're still here. Like, you know, maybe 90% of us were wiped out and by disease, by genocide, by violence, by, you know, rape and pillage. And it's horrible to think of that history, right? And I mean, even this false narrative of, you know, being wiped out and being not here anymore and being a, a, a figment of the past, which is what mm -hmm. I have been told a lot of the time. I've heard so many times in my life, you're native? I didn't know Native Americans still existed. I thought you were all extinct. Or being told, oh, no, like, well, oftentimes, you know, it'll be more derogatory and they'll say like, no, all the Indians died out or no, Indians don't exist anymore or the whole you know, distancing mm. yourself from a, a problematic history by saying things like, oh, well, I'm a great, 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 great granddaughter of a Cherokee princess, which doesn't exist. Princesses don't mm. exist in indigenous royal, like indigenous culture. Um, but all the way, you know, back in third grade, man, third grade was a traumatic year for me thinking about it because after Columbus Day, we also celebrated the land run, which if you don't know, was a time, you know, in the 1800s, um, in like 1900s, when Oklahoma was being founded, it was originally Indian territory, right? And that was when Andrew Jackson coming into the history of the Seminole Nation and the other tribes that were forcefully, forcefully relocated. My people are originally from, you know, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, the Southeast United States, right? But with westward ex or with um, expansion along the East Coast, you know, a lot of politicians with the rise of the United States, the new founded country, white people wanted to move there. And Indians, or, you know, I call them Indians because I can, because I'm native, yeah, yeah. Uh, but 
it was, quote, the native problem, right? Um, and Because they were living and residing were, in areas where people white wanted, Americans wanted to live in. And this led right. to, was it called the Trail of Tears? The Trail of Tears. Okay. And that is actually how my, my family went from southeast, you know, United States, Florida, which is where, you know, historically we had always been, to Oklahoma and... I cannot like I cannot emphasize the devastation of the Trail of Tears and genocide enough. So many lives were lost, and uh, so much culture, and morale, and life was just devastated by colonialism, by settler colonialism. And that's you know, it's a horrible history. And that wasn't that long ago. The United States is two hundred years old. The pain of those ripples from that in the early 1800s still is felt today, the trauma basically, the, the loss of connection to country, the dislocation, the sense of being All of it. displaced in your own country, your own land. In your own country to the point where it doesn't feel like it's your own country anymore. Yeah. And this is where the land back movement comes comes in um, a little bit later. But this, this process along the Trail of Tears, right, and then consequently the land run where westward, you know, ex- like westward um, pioneers would go and they wanted Indian territory. They wanted what was... You know, after all of these natives were moved and stripped away from their homelands, put in Oklahoma, quote, the five civilized tribes, um, Mm -hmm. the Seminole Nation is one of them. And then ultimately being told, no, now that we know there's oil and rich farmland for grazing for cattle, we want that back. And so the one little piece of land that was given by the United States was once again ripped away through this process called the land run which we so duly reenacted in the third grade where you dress up as, you know, pioneers. You you wear like the the little house on the prairie skirts. You wear cowboy hats and you build covered wagons, fill it with your stuff. And what the process of the land run was, was there's flags in, you know, in acres of land on Indian territory that they forcefully, once again, removed indigenous peoples from. Mm. And then at the, you know, sound of a pistol, all of these prospectors with their wagons and their horses and their families raced forward to pull out a white flag and put in their own flag, um, representing that that was their state, like rightful land, their rightful territory, take it and then be able to settle there and develop a family and a community. Um, and we reenacted this in in the third grade and it was I remember yeah. being. This would have been the what late two thousands or when are we talking? <laughs> yeah, about? this was this was probably like late two thousands, right? Yeah, it's like and it, recent, it still continues. Yeah. Oh, it still continues. It's mm-hmm. twenty twenty four, and I'm I'm pretty sure the land run, you know, reenactment yep. still continue, you know, across Oklahoma, and it's a source of pride, which is also something that I've I've had to reckon with as I grow older, with this this dissonance between a false history and a true narrative mm. is separating what is real and what is not and growing up and and seeing, you know, I remember being so excited because it was a day off school, right? Mm. You got to dress up. My mom put so much effort and I know it must have made her so uncomfortable to make me a pioneer outfit. Like she, she put me in pretty like little prairie skirt and a little bonnet and she's hand sewed this. And I cannot imagine the horror she must have felt sewing that for me. Yeah full well being older and more knowledgeable about the history of the United States. And so reenacting that as a child, you know, just contributes to this false history. And and, and I'm honored to use my voice and my platform and my experience in education to do things like this where, mm. you know, the land run was, you know, not... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can sort of correct the record and sort of speak truth to power and correct. actually say how things were. Exactly. I, I mean, I do want to come to what it looks like to kind of, you know, to be a part of the Seminole Nation yeah. in the 21st century. But perhaps before we get there, just to sort of close off the, the history part. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. What, what, what before the arrival of the mm-hmm. European colonisers, what was the Seminole Nation and what, what were the cultural practices like? I mean, what what is that sort of almost utopian image before, you know, white settlement and I guess the displacement and trauma? What, what did that look like? Of course. So like I like I had already said, the Seminole Nation, it was originally, you know, from Florida and Alabama, Georgia, modern day, right? But during the time there were no states. Hmm. And our community was very much a proud community. It was, you know, lived in houses, little like little rat like houses floating um, on stilts called chickies, which were really cute. And we spoke the language Muskoke, which um, now a lot of people call Muskogee. Um, that's also a name for another tribe. Similarly, you know, conflated with Creek, hmm. which I'm also a descendant of. But the Seminole Nation, the Creek Nation, the Muscogee Nation all share like a similar area of origination. And, uh, you know, just the similar language, the similar mm-hmm. culture. We, you know, were hunters and gatherers and farmers and had complex life ways and where music these music and culture, music and culture, and uh, 
you know, after there's these beautiful skirts made out of patchwork, which is something still so significant and iconic to the, the Seminole Nation. And, you know, my great grandmother wore them. My mom wore them. The tribe wears them. It's just like this beautiful artistic clothing that is unique to only the Seminole Nation. And, you know, pre-colonization, there was very much one Seminole Nation, but post being, you know, forcefully removed on the Trail of Tears, we split into two, the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma and the Seminole Nation of Florida. Um, and so now we are two separate tribes, both federally recognized. But at the same time, the, the Seminole tribe of Florida is one of the wealthiest native nations in the United States, whereas the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma is not. And it is crazy to see how even after, you know, seeing this, this divide pre and post-colonialism, how even today, you know, there's still rifts in that are being created just because there's there's not that, you know, homogeneity anymore. Yeah, we were but, separated and, yeah. But then also the consequent divergences in policies that affect mm -hmm. Native Americans. Like in Oklahoma, you might not have rights to lands and resources, where in Florida, the Seminole people probably would have. Just to, to jump um, along in the interview, mm -hmm. the country I come from, uh, Australia, right. has had similar experiences in trying to reconcile itself with colonization. Um, after the often destructive policies towards our Indigenous brothers mm -hmm. and sisters over hundreds of years um, and trying to understand what it means to be almost like m many nations within one whole modern nation state, right? So despite all the trauma, there are still enduring senses of survival, of nationhood, identity and language in the 500 Aboriginal nations that existed pre-European settlement. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you were talking before about, you know, we're still here, we're, we're, we survived and we've thrived, um, that is something that in Australia, our Australian, Aboriginal Australians will often talk about, you know, word for word, exactly. So I'm curious as to what it looks and feels like for you to be part of the Seminole Nation today in the 21st century as its, you know, up and coming emergent leader. I'm not only proud to be a member of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma, but I'm also proud to be Indigenous. I'm proud to be Native, and that's something I've not always felt. And I think growing up and starting to see you know, the emergence of social media and of, you know, famous TikTok, indigenous TikTokers and YouTubers and creatives and actors has really, really helped me come into my own of being confident as someone who can change the world with their leadership. Growing up, I did not see a lot of kind and strong and fierce, you know, native leaders or politicians or you know, change makers. And something I've always wanted to do is be that for people. Visibility. I, visibility, right? I want to, I want to show other people that this is possible and that we are still here and we have always been. And I think being, you know, native today is something that is much less, obviously much, much less dangerous than it was for my great grandmother or my grandmother or my mom or me or my brother. Um, but at the same time, we still face so, so many challenges that I'm proud to devote, you know, my life and my work and my my policies and my efforts to combating. I I think that mm. I've grown to be someone who's confident with myself and my identity. And identity is a big, you know, a big factor and a big issue with Indigenous people of like figuring out who am I? What do I look like as a Native in 2024? What does that look like for the roles I hold and the jobs I take and the schools I'm in and the communities I interact with? And how can I, you know, change those for the better? And, and how do you walk between two worlds in many ways? How do you maintain cultural practices and language and, and, and right. like, you know, interpersonal relations with your family as well, but also be part of, I guess, the that sort of contemporary American homogenous nation. Right. right. And it, and it's hard. It really is because I, you know, I get to live this really cool, you know, I have such a strong tie to my, my native culture, but also I'm also just yeehaw. I, you know, <laughs> y'all, I, I yeah. love Southern food, Southern hospitality. Mm. I love the community. I miss my home. Like yeah. I, I miss the sun and the, the rolling hills and the community and the family that I have there. But I'm, you know, also have to grapple with this dissonance between mm. my my indigenous identity. And I've been trying to reconnect a lot more. And this is also a big thing that I know in Australia, 
lots of Aboriginal people are doing and the same in the North America and South America is reconnection, mm -hmm. reconnecting with your roots, reconnecting with your culture. And I've been doing language classes in my free time to learn my traditional language. Uh, so Hishje is Tongo, like, hi, how are you? There nice. you go. Um, and my parents always, you know, my great grandma would tell my my parents' words in, in Seminole and she would speak Seminole with her sister and you know, my dad will still name our Wi-Fi password in, in seminal words. And, mm. you, you know, we still say like, hey, la, if you're doing something bad and you're yeah. not supposed to be touching that. Or, you know, my mom would be like, hey, la, Hachi, Watson, get out of the kitchen because they're my dogs and they're not <laughs> supposed to be eating floor food. Um, or like, oh, hey, yo, like just things we say, mm. like there's a, a certain culture to, to, indigeneity that I, I'm working to blend. And of course, it's a constant battle. I'm constantly trying to learn how to blend these two worlds mm -hmm. in this 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 borderlands of, of my life. And I'm trying to reconnect. I'm, you know, teaching myself the language. I decided to do indigenous studies at Columbia. I continue to devote my life to indigenous law and policy because they're things I really care about. And I learn something new every day. And of course, we are not homogenous. My experience is so different from other Native peoples, from, you know, First Nations people, from Aboriginal peoples. But we all do share this, this common this common trauma and this common hope for the future and resilience and strength and power is because at the end of it, we are still here. We are, we have survived so many attempts at erasure, yet we still come back stronger and seeing more representation and seeing myself in places like the Blatnik School of Government at Oxford of all places, right? The that, wellspring of that colonial UK imperial. It, it does, mission, it does, know. but it gives me a lot of hope as well because yeah, no, of course. this is not common. I was talking to my mom last night and about just like imposter syndrome, and she was like, I don't think that there are, she's like, do you know of any other indigenous or native students at Oxford? And I racked my brain for a probably good 20 minutes and I could not say yes. You should start a group or a society I, or Right. Yeah, I was like, I want to start like a little, like I was very involved in Native American Council at Columbia and yeah. I wanted to do that here, but with who, right? And yeah, yeah. so I'm like, maybe I'll just expand it and teach and teach the, you know, teach others because- Yeah, I'll come to a class. I'll right. It's not, it's not reduced to just indigenous peoples, but that solidarity exists yeah. beyond just natives. It, solidarity requires- a concerted effort from everybody. Mm. And I think that's where I've I've learned to be so much more prouder of my identity is being reinforced by the communities that I surround myself in and yeah. truly feeling like I'm empowered to make change and be here um, at Oxford and be here talking to you. Um, yeah, thanks, wonderful reflections. Yeah. And and talking about family and, and culture, um, sadly your great-grandmother, the matriarch of your family and tribe, passed away late last year. So I'm very sorry for your loss and I know how much she meant to you through conversations that we've had and to your family as well. I was hoping um, if you feel happy to do so, if you'd uh, like to tell us a little bit more about her, what kind of person she was and, and what she represented to you and, and also to the Seminole Nation. Yeah. Um, man. It's just gone dark in the room too. No, for like, it's like it, the mood. <laughs> it's half the lights turned off. Oh, absolutely. Like, but it's it's like mood lighting, right? Yeah, exactly. It's set in, it's set in the scene. But yeah. my, la like you said, last semester, last term, right? Michaelmas, my first time really internationally away from home. My great-grandmother, Elizabeth, or as we call her, Bessie Spencer, passed away. And she was 92 years old and lived a really, really long, awesome life. Like, man, she was so cool. But I was away and I I got to say goodbye over FaceTime, mm. which was really hard um, because my family has always been quite, quite small. I didn't, just because of family things and moving around a lot as a kid, I, I never really had that giant extended family that everybody talks about. Like, you don't, you don't go hang out with the cousins. You don't, you know... It was me, my mom, dad, brother, and dogs. Mm. But there was also grandma. Yeah. And she loved us so much and would always make such an effort to be around and show up and be present when I was like a kid. And continuing as I grew older, I always kept thinking like, I have such good memories with grandma and my mm. brother does too. And my whole family does. And my mom was partially raised by her. And you know, her husband at the time who passed when my mom was young. But 
man, it's it's hard to think about because she she meant so much to me and my family and my my community. Yeah. And we haven't really had time to mourn just because life goes so fast. Yeah. But she lived life so good. Mm. And, uh, you know, she was 92 years old, so she was born in the 30s, right? I'm, yep. And <laughs> going when, when we were planning for her funeral, we looked at all of her pictures, and she's lived a thousand lives. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the 1950s with the pedal pushers on a bike. There's her with, like, chains and a f- big old fluffy hair. And she was a woman of devotion and of love and of humor, but silently because she could never, she always had to be bad cop um, compared to my great grandpa who I never got to meet. Um, But she was so cool and sharp and smart. And I, that's where my middle name comes from. It's from her, Grace Elizabeth Fox. And I carry that with me every day. And she even though I didn't get to see her a lot later on towards her death because I was at Columbia or I was, you know, in DC or I was here at Oxford, I never did not believe that she loved me and thought of me every day. I always got birthday cards. And one of the things I carry with me now is a coat of hers. And even before she passed, she had preemptively made Christmas presents for me and my brother. And we got them about a month after her passing on Christmas. Um, she was truly a woman of power and of love, and I miss her, and my whole family misses her, but I try to live by her spirit, knowing that she had such a fulfilling life, and I can't wait to live a life like hers, yeah. so I can tell, you know, my, my as I say, future ancestors yeah, yeah. Ab- about the stories that I've had and show them a life where when I was a kid, I didn't have the same opportunities that they will have. And I think that's empowering and enlightening to think what will life be like for for them? Yeah, yeah. Just as I'm sure, you know, Grandma Bessie wondered, what is life going to be for my great, yeah. great grandkid? And that's crazy. You know, she all she wanted to do was my mom told me this. All she wanted to do. She always would joke being like, I'm going to die soon. Like, I'm going to die soon. And my mom's like, don't say that. Right. And she's like, I just want to live to see, you know, my granddaughter get married, which is my mom. And then my mom got married. <laughs> um, or she's like, oh, I want to live till I see my first great grandbaby be born. And then I was born and right. I got to live a whole 21 years before she passed. <laughs> and, you know, she saw me graduate elementary, middle, high, and in college. And I think that's such a lovely thing is to continue her spirit through my work yeah. to always hold always hold her love and always hold her grit and her humor and her unwavering sense of pride in me hmm. with everything that I do. And Bessie, her legacy will continue to live on through you and future generations after you as always, well. Always, always. And that's something that I'm proud of and something that continues to motivate me with yeah. everything I do. Um, it is humbling, though, to think about just how much change she would have seen from the 1930s to, you know, to the current day, but also then to cast your mind forward to thinking about, like, you know, future generations that come after you and how right. many different changes and maybe in, I don't know, 70, 80 years' time, someone will be no. speaking at the Blavatnik School of Government again and exactly. doing a podcast about their great-grandmother. And who Grace knows, maybe they'll, maybe they'll take out, you know, my, my, my brain and put it into AI, like a yeah. Black Mirror or something crazy, but... Hopefully they've worked out the air conditioning in this room before then, though. Absolutely. (laughs) No white noise for them. (laughs) Um, So is there a part of your home country in terms of nature and landscape Mm -hmm. that you feel happiest when thinking about when you think of home? And obviously home, we've talked a lot about being around other people too, but just trying to understand that sense of like like rootedness in in Oklahoma and being with your your family too, like and paint a a portrait for the listeners about where you come from and, and what that world is like because I often think, you know, we turn up at this school at the Master of Public Policy mm. in like what late September right. last year. Everyone meets each other where we're at, which is wonderful. But we have this like it's like the tip of the iceberg, you know. Or you have this like deep hinterland, and yeah, I'm just mm. trying to like where you. Right, and it's it's funny actually. Growing up, I I always <laughs> growing up, I couldn't wait to get out. I couldn't wait to leave Oklahoma, and. Uh, Maybe some of that came from a similar feeling of what when Andrew Jackson, you know, was deciding where am I going to move all of these natives who I don't want in my country. Um, He said, put them in Oklahoma. There's no person like on in this on this planet 
who would willingly want to live there because of its you know, it's rough terrain. It's all plains. We don't have a lot of trees unless they're oak trees. Um, and we have, you know, just so much grass and, you know, wildlife and, you know, plains land, right? And then they found oil and they were like, oh, wait, we want this back. Mm-hmm. But I, I, you know, coming back to what I, what I was growing up, I always just, you know, was like, I can't wait to get out. I'm so bored. But then, the more and more I lived away, the more and more I miss it. And I never thought I would say that. Um, but the grass is so pretty. It It's like a, it changes colors throughout the year, right? But the wild grass is so tall. And, you know, when I'm driving, and I do miss driving, but when I'm driving right past all these wheat fields and these corn fields, and it's just blowing in the wind, which is an iconic, you know, Oklahoma, mm. um, you know, thing from the musical Oklahoma where the wind comes sweeping down the plains, right? And it's truly that the wind will blow the wheat and the grass and we get such pretty wildflowers in in the spring and in the fall. And a lot of them have deep rooted stories within like native culture mm-hmm. of just seeing things bloom and seeing life come come back after being attached with the seasons and being attached with the seasons and being attached with the land. You know, even when it wasn't the land that was like our original homeland, it's still the land, it's my homeland now. And I will say that there is no place on, on this earth that I have seen prettier sunsets. We have skies that get painted with, with cotton candy colors, light Mm. blues and pinks and purples and oranges that you've, you will never see unless you are there. And I, I've seen some pretty sunsets in my life, but Every time I go home and I see the sky light up with different colors and I see the sun filter through the grass and I see, you know, it's so flat. You can see as far as the horizon will let you see. It's truly gorgeous. And I, you know, being able to live in Colorado or New York or here at Oxford, I, you know, you think I would shift my perception on beauty, but there's something so lovely and something so comforting about being home and seeing those sunsets and seeing the warm, warm sun. Gosh, you don't have that here, huh? No, there's no sun. No, no <laughs> sun at all. But the sun is so warm and good. You yeah. can feel it in your skin and you feel healthy and you feel energized. I love that feeling. And like it's like kissing the back of your neck, you know, the neck yes. of your neck when you feel like beaming down on you and you yes. feel energized and alive. And you feel your face warm up and it feels like a hug from mm-hmm. nature, right? And, you know, I miss that. And yeah. that's something that, I don't think a lot of people think about when they think of Oklahoma, no. if they think of anything well, at they all. They should now. Like a, <laughs> I hope they do. I hope they do. Masters of poetry or creative writing or something. This is Who a knows? Wonderful description. I get Which funding. Maybe want to book tickets to Oklahoma. Yeah. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Come visit. You are more than welcome. I will host you and feed you the best food you've ever had in your life. <laughs> <laughs> so we've spoken about um, Gloria Ansaldúa before, of an American scholar who wrote a semi-autobiographical work called Borderlands. Mm-hmm. La Frontera, which is something you mentioned before, actually, in one of your answers. Right. About the experience of living in the borderlands between the U.S. and Mexico, mm-hmm. exploring the liminality of that region through a mix of Spanish and English poetry, and also the idea of cultural layerings on top of the original inhabitants of the southwestern lands of the U.S., the Aztecas del Norte, or the Chicano peoples of Atslan. I think I've, I've not pronounced that correctly. Yeah, so, I mean, given you you know about Ansel Dua, could you talk a bit about what you enjoy about her work and and whether this sense of borderlands and living between many layers of identity and belonging resonates with you? Right. I, I first came across uh, Gloria Ansel Dua in my contemporary civilization course, I believe it was, or my literature humanity course at Columbia. And I was, you know, privileged enough to be put with two professors who greatly, greatly divested away from this core of Western thinking and wanted to introduce, you know, decolonial and post-colonial scholars into our into our works and into our, our framework instead of just, you know, Hobbes, Locke, um, and a whole bunch of people after. And I remember first reading Ansel Dua, you know, early on in my, my academic career and feeling like I was seen, you know, I'm, I'm not Latino, I'm you know, but Latinos are indigenous, right? Mm. And I live in Oklahoma, which borders Texas, and I grew up surrounded by a large Latino community and also just by, you know, a large native community feeling like 
you're never quite living in one world. You've got a foot in both and you try not to give any of them up. You try to live a life that's whole. And reading her, you know, her poetry and her writings in English and Spanish and her fighting translations, but also like kind of like buying into them and creating the, her own like Chicano mm. writing style is iconic. And truly seeing her grab hold of her identity and say, no, you don't get to put me into a box. I'm going to be what I want to be and what I know I can be. And I'm not going to let academia, I'm not going to let society tell me what I need to be to be a scholar. And I think I take a lot of a lot of pride and inspiration from her work just because not only is her work beautiful and the prose is fantastic, mm. but she talks about, you know, a whole bunch of identities and a whole bunch of topics that that relate so much to the indigenous experience. And there's one and it's, you know, about language, the mother tongue, right? And it talks about her trying to figure out her blend between her languages. And I'm like I said, I'm I'm teaching myself Muskogee and I'm trying to learn for myself. And I grew up hearing it and I grew up surrounded by other things, but teaching myself as an older person is is difficult. But I, I take inspiration from her writing in 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 her own way to be so so fantastic. And she's prolific and a, a scholar that I have always looked up to and will continue to look up to. And I need to read more of her works when I get free time. And I'm yeah, not yeah. doing these these um, evidence or um, oh politics readings, but. <laughs> She is she is truly someone who first shaped my my framework of what it means to be a scholar and what it means to be an academic. And she introduced me, you know, she was my gateway to Audre Lorde and Edward Said and, you know, Bell Hooks. She set me on that path of saying, this is what I like to read. This is what I want to do. And ultimately, it was probably Ansel Dua and reading that and having being taught by two professors, Manana Med and Amudena Marinkobos, who really just like set me on that path of saying, I don't have to look at academia in the way that institutions make me want to look at academia. Yeah. I can look at it how I want to and really fall into fall into love with ethnic studies and indigenous studies just because I knew I had people backing me and I knew people had done this before me and yeah. that I could do it after them. And there's also a sense in which you are free to create um, you know, a path going forward. You don't have to sort of simply accept the way things were before in academia, in your professional life too. And to that point, you've recently worked for the US Department of the Interior in yes. the Bureau of Indian Education, mm -hmm. um, where I guess you're working between those two worlds again and sort of, again, freely creating a different policy future um, for your people and for the American people as well, uh, more collectively. Um, but can you talk a bit about what that experience was like working in the department and what are some of the main Indigenous policy issues in America today? Right. I am so fortunate to be a recipient, a 2023 recipient of the Udall Native American Congressional Internship. And I've had a lovely relationship with the Udall Foundation. I'm also a Udall undergraduate scholar. And that is essentially a foundation that really devotes its 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 funds and its work to uplifting Native American and Indigenous students across the United States to you know, achieve their greatest potential, whether that be an environment and policy and government and health. And I, you know, as a recipient of that fellowship, I was partnered with the U United States Department of the Interior, and I worked at the Bureau of Indian Education, which has always been a dream of mine. I am a huge advocate for public education and for education that is culturally relevant, holistic, well-funded, and, you know, a part of a student's life that will contribute to their future in the long run, not just K through 12. And something that I, I was really passionate about was creating this education system that was culturally relevant. Most of all, you know, at, at Columbia, I had devoted my time to ethnic studies, not in the way of just being a student, but of also being an activist. I found, you know, I helped found the Columbia Caesar Student Advisory Board, CSER, Caesar stands for the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race. And we were fighting for departmentalization because even at an institution like Columbia, mm. they do not prioritize ethnic studies. They do not prioritize Latino, Asian, Native American, Black studies. And it's shocking to see the only reason that center was funded or that center was created was because of, you know, a hunger strike. In, in the 90s by students. And to see that progress is always created by students 
and always created by activists. And you can't just expect institutions, pushing at the gates, right? You can't expect institutions to do things without forcing them to. And so that's something that, uh, that really shifted my framework was creating education that teaches critical race theory, education that teaches indigenous history, you know, education that teaches students from a young age how to think critically about the world they live in, about the societies they experience, and how to navigate those as either, you know, just, you know, privileged kids or either as the least privileged kids. And being able to work that and experience the systems and know that the systems exist, acknowledge and fight them. That has always been my goal. And I wanted to work with the uh, Bureau of Indian Education because I know that they, they really work hard to create culturally relevant education systems, media, they work hard to create funding and scholarships and help indigenous students achieve their highest potential, especially within, you know, schools across the United States. And that was something that I was really wanting to get into was, you know, working in a public service role, working in a um, federal department and getting to do that this, this past summer was incredibly enlightening, getting to, you know, really wedge myself into that that position as kind of like a negotiator, almost like a a diplomat of some sorts, blending when it comes back to identity, my indigenous beliefs and my radical ways of wanting to change this world, but also, you know, fitting into a bureaucratic system that has historically been very detrimental to Native kids. And oppressive, yeah. And do you see yourself maybe in the future continuing to work within government or is it or, or maybe in the law or maybe elected office like what what's the kind of like the ideal vision look like for you I mean again <laughs> great question to, right right now, 20, but... 21 years old and I'm expected to have my life <laughs> together right but well, I'm 31 and I don't so honestly I don't know what I'm doing in six months time but yeah <laughs> who knows a summer project hopefully yes um goodness. well to be honest I've could see myself in anything. I think I've always committed myself and devoted myself to a passion as opposed to an expectation, Mm -hmm. right? As long as I know I'm helping Native communities, I am making the world a better place. I've, you know, in my Gates essay when I was in high school, they asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, happy. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a whole essay about just wanting to be happy and proud of the work that I did and knowing that when I leave this world, I will have left it better than when I came into it. That is such a passion of mine. And I truly believe that, especially with this policy background, that there will be many opportunities that I can wedge myself into that sustains that goal of mine. Um, I initially wanted to do law and maybe I still want to do law. I love policy. I've done so much nonprofit work and I truly enjoy that. And I would love to continue my work with nonprofits, regardless if that's my main career or not. But i being here at Blavatnik has made me feel like maybe I could do public office. Maybe I could hold some kind of significant power. And if I did, how do I be a good leader? And how do I continue being a good leader and building upon what I've, I've spent my whole life training to do. And so who knows what's next, but I'm, I'm excited for it regardless. And, you know, maybe I'll figure it out by the summer. Maybe I'll figure it out by (laughs) next year. Either way, I've loved everything I've done. I've been so privileged by the communities and the positions that I've been offered and, I, I can't wait to pay it forward and pay it back. Mm-hmm. And so coming towards the end of the interview, um, I've heard you use the phrase future ancestors to refer to the generations to come and mm-hmm. also that connection with uh, ancestors who have gone before you. But what does this mean? And, and would it be right to say that you've got a strong sense of being a link or connected with your family and ancestors in the past and also those to come in future years? I think so. Yeah, absolutely. One of a big cultural thing I think that I believe in is this this connection with the past and the future and this idea that you know we have a lineage and it's in it's impactful to to create a a life that you are proud of and a life that those who came before you and those who will come after you are also proud of there's this concept in in some native tribes it's called the seven generations and the concept is that you the imp- the decisions and the actions you take today will affect your ancestral line for seven generations to come. Mm. And you should always keep seven generations in your mind when you're making decisions and when you're acting and when you speak to people and when you when you live your life because it doesn't just affect you. And I think that's something that is hard for a lot of people to grasp is your life is not just your life. It is the life of everybody who has put love and life into you. Mm. And when I say future ancestors, I, I kind of love that term, actually. I think it describes so well the, you know, the significance and the cultural impact of 
those who came before you, but knowing that people will come after you and it's your job to protect and create a better world for them, a better yeah. a world, better led, better serve, ever governed, <laughs> you know, the whole thing like that. But, yeah, but generally say that here at the no, Robotnik School. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they, they love that slogan, yeah. but to create a world that, that is good for everyone, not just you. Mm. And seeing yourself as not an individual, but as a part of a community is something that I carry with myself deeply and something that I hope to pass on whether or not I directly continue my lineage or I mentor or I teach mm. or I love or I create friendships. All or write of, books that people read, you know. Exactly. Everything, everything can be a connection to what you've yes. done in this life. And I hope to leave a good one. So what fills you with hope um, about how young people are working for the Seminole Nation and uh, Native hmm. Americans as well? Um, for the continuation of your shared history, both as an individual nation, but also more collectively like a, a pan sort of Native American right. future. I mean, I think it could be so cool. I think it already is so cool. You know, youth today are putting in so much effort to create solidarity. And I think solidarity, as we've seen with recent social movements like Black Lives Matter um, or Against Asian Hate or, you know, as one of our lovely cohort members, March for Her Lives, has created is the sense of solidarity and the sense of, you know, binding together to fight an oppressive system. And that's always kind of how it has to be um, in order to make significant and long-lasting sustainable change. Mm. And what I see today is a lot of people being proud, not only being proud to be Native, being proud to be Indian, but being proud to work together between tribes, between cultures, not just within Natives, but within external communities who have probably faced similar forms of oppression or colonialism. And saying, we, we have a goal, let's work together, let's get it done. I think there's a kind of grit and passion and like fire that I see in a lot of, you know, Native youth today that I didn't see a lot growing up. And I'm honored to be hopefully a part of it and so excited to see it continue and, and blossom through movements like Land Back or, you know, MMIW, MMIP, um, and, you know, other, other movements that are going to change what it means to be a Native person in the United States over the next couple generations. Stunning. And so coming again to the last, or the second last question. Right. Do you have any Oh, I words? talk a lot. I apologize. No, <laughs> this has been an extravaganza. I think we're nearly at an hour, which is good. Oh my God, I feel no, so No, no, we'll, we'll be kicked out shortly. This is why I'm sort of... Uh, okay, yeah. we'll speed <laughs> run, speed run. No, it's been, it's been really wonderful uh, to talk. But I was, yeah, so obviously coming towards the end, I'm wondering if you had any words of advice for those thinking of applying to the Blavatnik School of Government and the University of Oxford, particularly for those with Indigenous heritage, wherever, wherever they may be from around the world, um, and who have overcome um, significant barriers to get here, I guess, like like yourself. Right. Do it. Just, just put your mind to it and know that you can do it is what I would tell anybody thinking that they can't. I, you know, a year ago when we were applying, I thought, man, I'm just doing this. I'm not going to get it. I'm spending my winter break applying for a, you know, a master's degree that I know I'm not going to get. And I, I was lucky enough and privileged enough and I worked hard enough to get it. And I didn't think it could happen. And I thought that a lot about, you know, many moments in my life. I didn't think I could get Udall. I didn't think I could get Gates. I didn't think I could get Columbia. Those were my wildest dreams. And if you put limits on what you think you can do, those limits will stop you from doing what you could ultimately do. And so I think I would just say, do it. You never know what someone's going to say. Like you just have to do it. You send in that application because you don't know what they're going to say. You may think that you're not good enough, but who knows what they think. Um, we are our own worst critics. And especially if you come from a background that is disenfranchised or historically marginalized, you are especially needed at places like Oxford. That is how things change. That is how things get better. And that's how, that's how, that's how we improve. Yeah. So, yeah. I love that quote. Um, shoot for the moon and even if you miss you'll land among the stars, stars. so yeah exactly um final short answer questions so gotcha. like, rapid like, fire <laughs> yeah like um maybe a word or a couple of words gotcha. each. we'll see because we are going to be thrown out of here in a second um favorite restaurant or bar in oxford Ooh, i love lamb and flag that is my favorite pub mm -hmm. and i don't know restaurant actually i i love i love all food <laughs> um best memory of the mpp so far 
Oh, man. Military boot camp at the beginning of the term has got to be up there. I mean, raising a flag without touching it is kind of a crazy task to do, especially yeah. when you're just meeting people. Yeah. So wonderful yeah. icebreaker and bonding exercise as well. I guess. All in yeah. one. So who was the first person you met on the course? Oh, the first person I think I met was Schwab. Yeah. Um, when we went to Chinese food at Grand Sichuan and to a, and to do the obscure after. I mm. think it was him that I first met because he had set up that event and I was so grateful that someone did it. Yeah, cool. I didn't go terribly. I no. Like we, oh, we could have been the first. We could have, yeah. See, we could have been the first ones. One that <laughs> I should have just lied and said it was you. <laughs> yeah, that's it. All right, so the last one. Somewhere you're looking forward to traveling this year. Ooh, I want to travel the world. I never got to travel growing up outside of the country, you know, so I am so, so excited about doing that. Like I said, I've been to Scotland, but I'm thinking about going on the Iceland trip in a few weeks cool. or for March, spring Northern break, Lights, yeah. right? Yeah. I've never seen the Northern Lights, but it's always been my bucket list. So mm. maybe I'll get to go see them, you know, see some, I don't know, are there reindeer there? Huskies maybe? Husky, Huskies, I stop. Yeah. I love dogs. Um, <laughs> but yeah, definitely the Northern Lights is, is a dream of mine. So maybe Iceland next. Oh, cool. Wonderful. And uh, so that's the end of the interview. Thank you so much for your time today, Grace. It's been a real privilege to, to speak with you and learn right. from you. Um, thank you to all the listeners of the Oxford Policy Podcast. Um, please like and subscribe and, and share our podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at, at OxfordPolicyPod underscore. Um, we're available on Spotify, iTunes, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. But um, yeah, thank you once again, Grace. It's been awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so appreciative of this.